This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi again, and welcome to New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies, a channel within the New Books Network. I am your host, Tiffany Gonzalez, a PhD candidate in history at Texas A&M University. Today on the program, we have Dr. Emily Skidmore, an associate professor in the Department of History at Texas Tech University. Dr. Skidmore is here to discuss her award-winning book, True Sex, The Lives of Trans Men at the Turn of the 20th Century, published with New York University Press in 2017. Her research and writing focus on U.S. women's and gender history, cultural history, and queer studies. And I'd like to add, her book has been recently published, or sorry, re-released in paperback, which is really fantastic. Hello, (laughs) Emily, and welcome to New Books in Gender Studies. I'm so happy to have the opportunity to interview interview you. And I remember when when you first started working on this manuscript for official publication, and it's wonderful to finally see it in fruition, but I have the hard copy and I'm <laughs> holding on to it. So I'm really happy to finally see it here and hold it. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really, I really appreciate the invitation and I'm looking forward to, to our conversation. And I too, I'm also happy to have the book as a tangible object <laughs> <laughs> out in the world. Yes. Yes. People to see it. Cause I know it's, it's a love of labor, but it's a love of labor to create a discussion to create consciousness so absolutely, absolutely. so to start off this session I want to ask you to tell us more about yourself about your personal and professional background how you got into this profession sure yeah so I my I guess my career as a historian began when I was an undergraduate at uh, at McAllister College which is a small liberal arts school in St. Paul Minnesota and it was there that I really, I really fell in love with history. Um, it, I took classes in my very first year there um, with folks like Peter Ratcliffe, Barry Wingard, and they showed me a completely different side of history. They showed me, you know, histories of queer people and of histories of immigration and of women and of people of color, um, stories that had always been at the margins um, of narratives that I'd received in in middle school, high school, et cetera. Um, and that was really powerful. It was really, really powerful for me. I began to think about and see that uh, history, the writing of history is a form of activism or can be a form of activism, that writing history is a very political act. Um, and so that got me sort of interested in becoming a historian um, and it, and it's remarkable because the, at McAllister, when I was there, you know, the, the queer community was, was very visible, um, very present on campus. And that really shaped many of the discussions that we had in the classroom, you know, when we, whenever in a history class, for example, um, there was always an awareness that you had to be talking about sexuality. You had to talk about gender, you had to talk about race. Um, you had to talk about class in order to have like a, a fully nuanced conversation. And so when I went to graduate school, I assumed that that the that, that was how the entire historical discipline was. Right? I assumed that um, that all historians understood that you had to talk about sexuality, you had to talk about gender, you had to talk about race. Um, and then I got to graduate school and I realized that's not entirely true. That's not meant for <laughs> representative of the, of the broader discipline. Um, and so when I, when I started graduate school, I went to the university of Illinois 
And when I got there, I don't know if you heard that, but my um, laptop just dinged. I apologize if that entered. It's totally okay. (laughs) The audio escaped. Um, So when I went to Illinois, I um, had lots of fantastic colleagues, members of my cohort. Um, And then I also realized that um, not everyone understood that that sexuality and gender um, were important historical categories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I entered graduate school thinking that I was going to be a labor historian. <laughs> and I went to work with the very wonderful uh, Dave Rodiger. And, um, and then very quickly in those early weeks of graduate school, I began to rethink my focus. And, um, you know, I've always sort of thought of myself as an activist. And I began thinking like, okay, if the historical discipline isn't what I thought it was, right, if it's not as um, inclusive as, as, as I saw it being at McAllister, um, then maybe my work should, you know, center voices that I see as important, right? Um, And so that first year in graduate school, we had to do a research project. And it was then that I sort of began thinking about queer history as my element of, as my area of focus. And, and I mean, looking back on it now, it's possible that that shift was like a political shift, but also in a way, it was a way to like find community um, because there, the queer community at, at Illinois was certainly not as visible <laughs> as it had been in McAllister, the Twin Cities. And so I think that was sort of informing my, my shift as well. Um, but yeah, I began doing research on queer history, trans history specifically um, that first year in graduate school, and I never, never really looked back. So here we are. Here we are. And I do remember uh, when I was in your classroom sitting there when we were when I took your one of your graduate courses back in the day, um, that you'd always say, I'm a recovering labor historian. And I, I, I'd chuckle because <laughs> about it. But now like hearing it again, I still chuckle. Um, but you, you, you you've done such a wonderful job within the field. So I heard there's no there's no problem with me with you being a recovering labor historian. <laughs> And for those listening, labor exists everywhere. So she's doing, yeah. she still has, she's still ingrained yeah. in the training. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but I have a question that I really enjoy asking within these interviews because um, it really helps um, listeners understand how do we get into our project, right? And then you've kind of spoken about that, that from McAllister mm-hmm. to the University of Illinois, you, you, you realize that. Um, gender and sexuality, writing about it, writing about within this um these topics, it's not always as prominent, right, within different trainings, different departments. So how did you decide to write about what your book focuses on, um, the lives of trans men at the turn of the 20th century? And this could also go into talking about your methodology that's really important because that's what also drove this this study. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I began um, – Thinking about trans history in my very first year in graduate school, I did a research project that first year on Christine Jorgensen um, that went on to be my, my first article, like my feminist studies piece on um, Christine Jorgensen whiteness um, and creating like definitions of proper um, transness. And I, for a minute, thought I was going to continue on that sort of mid-20th century um, trans focus. But then once I began digging into the literature a little bit, I realized that in the field of trans studies as it existed then, and this was way back in 2005, 2006, uh, much of the focus was on the 20th century. Much of the focus was on individuals who had been assigned male at birth. And so I became interested in the earlier period, right? So what was the prehistory of, of the scholarship that um, had, was exist, existed at that time? Um, and I was also interested in uh, individuals who had been assigned female at birth because they had been you know, less, less discussed um, in the scholarship. So I had questions that the scholarship wasn't answering for me. Um, and very early on in my research process, I stumbled upon 
this photograph. This is actually a series of photographs. And they were what looked to be women, a group of women uh, dressed in suits. And they were wearing suits and the posing together um, with um, uh, like liquor bottles and cigarettes and the images were playful and silly. Like they're smiling and like they're just like these goofy individuals. Right? And they're about from the turn of the 20th century. And these photos sort of stopped me in my tracks. And I, I became really fascinated with the ways in which these individuals were playing with gender. Right. Um, because in these images, it was clear that they were um, sort of mocking men. <laughs> in a way, um, posing with these fixtures of masculinity, like cigarettes and liquor bottles. They all the pictures were of them. Um, many of them were outdoors in Western landscapes. Like it looked to me like Colorado or Utah um, space that you know often is maybe coded as masculine. Um, and so these images really stuck with me, and I began to uh, become really curious about gender transgression around the turn of the 20th century. Uh, and particularly the ways in which individuals who were assigned female at birth uh, maybe transgressed gender or, or played with gender or, or lived as men. And sort of it began there. Um, my work is deeply inspired by the work of folks like Peter Boag, Susan Stryker, um, the great activist and scholar Lou Sullivan as well. Um, so that's, that's, really, that's really where, where it began. Right, yeah. And there's another aspect of your book that I would, if you can answer, um, talk about is that the innovation of digital humanities really shaped mm -hmm. this, the fulfillment of the project. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about more about that research process and that use of that methodology of digital humanities that drove, that allowed for much of the primary sources? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the, so the, in my book, the primary resources, primary sources are newspapers and so absolutely, the digitization of newspapers has was foundational, formative to my research. Um, I was able to search through thousands of newspapers and find hundreds of newspaper articles, and through using you know keyword searches like "lived as a man" or "as a man" or "masquerade as a man," those phrases. And I was able to find hundreds of, of articles and that type of searching it was possible because of the digitization of newspapers. I, um, and it certainly wouldn't have been possible say 20 years ago or 25 years ago. Um, and so I feel really lucky that I was, became a historian at this moment where we have these digital tools at, at our fingertips. And so there are works like um, Lisa Dugan's great work, Sapphic Slashers, where she looks at newspaper articles and she's particularly interested in looking at um, a case from Memphis, Tennessee, and, um, you know, uses newspapers from Memf Memphis, Tennessee. And, I, and I, I love that book. It was really formative for my thinking about the history of race and sexuality and of gender Um and I like, I enjoyed the way she was working with newspapers. And then when I became aware of the possibilities that the digitization of newspapers really open up, I began to realize, oh, I can read the stories of um, a case from, say, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I can, through using digital sources, I can look at the way in which that person's local papers told the story and then track the way the narrative shifts and changes as it circulates to newspapers like the New York times, the New York world, the Chicago tribune, like national, um, national newspapers. And so I developed this methodology of really closely tracking narratives. Um, so, and, and the reason that this is important is because previous scholars that had used newspapers uh, tended to focus on uh, big national newspapers because those are the easiest to, to access when you don't have digital sources. Um, and so I began to ask the question, okay, when we're thinking about stories about gender and sexuality, uh, is 
the national press necessarily the best place to find those stories. And so I began sort of working backwards, um, looking at local coverage. And what I found was really surprising was that um, in the cases that I write about, which are individuals who were assigned female at birth, but who lived as male for um, sometimes decades uh, before their anatomy was revealed to their community, I was interested in looking at stories of so-called revelation. Okay, so the community understood these individuals to be men. Um, and through either upon their death or upon arrest or other engagement with officials, their anatomy would be revealed. I was interested in thinking about how the community responded. Okay. Um, like if they were in the police station, would they be arrested? Would they be let off? Like what, what would that process be? And then I began tracking the way that story was told in the local press and then the national press. And what I found was that, um, often, the local press was surprisingly understanding and flexible and um, willing to hear the person out, right? And they would interview the individual's wife or former boss, et cetera. And um, if the person was seen as living a quote-unquote good life, being a quote-unquote good man, um, then they were treated with, um, um, with benevolence, um, often not charged, let off. Um, but that was often, that benevolence was often erased as the stories were told outside of the local level. So you'd have a case that no charges would be filed on local level. And then yet as the story circulated and then say the New York world would, would, would report it and the trans man would be characterized as deviant and strange and um, a danger. Right when that yeah. wasn't the case on a local level, and so the uh, my ability to develop this methodology, right, tracking these narratives and finding this dissonance, right, this really really interesting dissonance between the local level and the national level, that methodology was completely enabled by the um, by the the digitization of newspapers that is you know continues on. Right, there's even more newspapers digitized now than there were you know five years ago when I was deep in the research stage of the book. Wow. Yeah. And it's going to continue growing. I mean, digital humanities is definitely shaping the field yeah, of absolutely, history, absolutely. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's something that I'm facing now as well. That's a positive, right? The, the boon mm-hmm. of information that's allowed. Um, and that's excellent. And so I have a question before diving into another question I had that I just thought about is that, is that the national press, such as in New York, you mentioned the t- mm-hmm. New York Times, um, mm-hmm. Chicago, I mean, Chicago, New York are very booming cities at this time, it seems like. What is it with the national national press? I mean, these are metropolitan cities that are changing the discourse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean the um, yeah, it's interesting um, because often, like in queer history, one of the assumptions for a long time, one of the guiding assumptions has been that um, queer lives can only exist in urban spaces. That's been sort of one of the guiding assumptions for the field for a long time. And so one might assume that if that's true, right, if cities are queerer than rural spaces, then we might expect that urban newspapers might be more um, forgiving of stories, of, of actors in stories of gender transgression. And what I find is that's actually not the case. Um, and so... Uh, in my book, I argue that part of the reason why is that large newspapers like the New York World um, and Chicago Tribune, et cetera, um, newspapers like that are um, invested in creating different social categories. And when you're telling a story that's somewhat abstracted from a local level, then you have more freedom to characterize a narrative as a morality tale, right? Black and white, right? Good and mm-hmm. bad, right? Deviant or, or, or not deviant. Um, and I saw that operating much more, um, much more clearly in these, in the, in the national press than I do in the local, in the local press. And I think part of that's just because of 
you know, the logics of familiarity that exists on a local level, right? You can't, it's much easier, it's much more difficult, excuse me, it's much more difficult to um, characterize someone um, as wholly deviant, wholly strange on the local level if there are members of the community that are invested in their lives, right? That are, that say, you know, depend on that butcher for their meat, you know? Um, If they're a valuable member of the community, it's, you know, um, the investments on the local level are different than we see on the national stage. Absolutely. You can, at the local level, they can see it. They can see how they're actually contributing or transforming Mm -hmm. the local area. Um, Mm -hmm. And this also goes goes into a conversation that you have with prominent theorists of the field, right? Such as mm-hmm. Michel Foucault, George Chauncey. And so how does, can you elaborate more? How does, how does your work either complement or deviate or complicate what we're understanding now that um, with this methodology and what we're knowing about what's different at the local versus the national? Yeah. Yeah. So my work is absolutely deeply indebted to scholars in queer history, scholars in trans history, uh, folks like, you know, John D'Amelio, George Chauncey, Lillian Faderman, Siobhan Somerville, Susan Stryker, Rachel Cleves, jo- Joanne Meyerowitz. Um, these are scholars that uh, were were formative in, in my thinking about, about my scholarship. Um, and the way I think about it is that in many ways, the existence of that, the, that body of scholarship makes my work possible. And so... I see my work as building on the wonderful work that, that came before my own. And I think that one of the ways in which I see my work sort of contributing to the always growing conversation is that it highlights queer history in rural spaces. And that's something that has often been, um, you know, up until about say 10 years ago, rural spaces really weren't talked about in, um, in queer history. That's changing. There's been um, lots of great work on that in the past few years, like Colin Johnson, I'm thinking of in particular, um, Peter Boag too. Um, and so we're beginning to have a fuller picture of the queer past, the queer past that isn't isolated in, in urban spaces, but is really, you know, throughout the interior of the nation as well. So, um, I see my work as, you know, expanding the lens of, of what sort of expanding ge- the geography of queer history, con- like adding to that conversation. Um, and I also, you know, I have a foot in, in women's history as well. And I think that one of the things that's really interesting about, you know, gender history right now is that, um, you know, again, my work is to- absolutely made possible by generations of women's historians that came before me. And so one of the um, things that I hope my work does is sort of pushes the field of gender history to think about how we classify subjects, you know, because for a long time, like going back to the 70s, individuals who um, cross-dressed were their identity as trans was not even thought of as a possibility. Okay. Um, And I think that in the past few years, I'm thinking of Claire Sears's work here too, um, opens the door to think like, Oh, wait, maybe um, we should think we should rethink the way we're classifying subjects. And maybe we shouldn't assume that everyone's cisgender (laughs) in the past, even if the modern identity category of transgender didn't exist in the past there is this historical phenomena of um, moving from one gender to another space. Um, and so I see my work as contributing to that as well, you know, deeply indebted to folks like Susan Stryker, um, Claire Sears, those folks. Yeah. And I noticed that while reading the monograph is that you start talking about this, especially within chapter one. Um, and I'm going to quote you, for this, that true sex reveals not only did trans men at the turn of the 20th century often choose to live in small towns and rural outposts, but they also often sought to pass as normative men aligning themselves with the values of their chosen communities, rather than seeking cons- consolation in the presence of other queer individuals. And you mentioned something um, as you were discussing the influence and how important it was that the living in rural communities 
on how they're building communities and how they're defining communities is that people at the at the early 20th century at the late 19th century were very aware of the fluidity of gender um, and had their had their own understanding of it um, and how the queer communities were developing in these rural landscapes. Can you tell us more about that of what's going on and how communities being defined within mm-hmm. the within the communities? Sure. Yeah. So, um, one of the um, conversations that uh, historians of queer history have have been grappling with since the 70s, since Foucault published The History of Sexuality, is this idea that sexologists or the scientists who are studying sex, um, human sexuality, um, Foucault argues that it's the sexologists that you know, create the define the category of the homosexual and create invented the species of the homosexual in 1870. And historians, you know, beginning with George Chauncey have been grappling with this, this idea and complicating that idea and thinking through that idea and saying, you know, it's not just sexologists that are creating and defining these categories. Um, but one of the things that I try to do in my research is to track sort of the percolation of sexological ideas. Um, one of my research questions is, was, um, you know, how does this elite medical discourse on sexuality, how, how does it sort of penetrate everyday folks' understanding of their gender and sexuality and the gender and sexuality of those around them? And what's interesting is that um, in the stories that I talk about, particularly the rural cases, um, for a very long time, well into the 20th century, sexological definitions are seen as like marginal (laughs) to their understanding of gender and sexuality. Um, For example, uh, in the first chapter of my book, I talk about an individual uh, who... Uh, went by the name of Frank Du Bois, and in 1882, uh, Frank Du Bois, who um, was assigned female at birth um, earlier in his life, had gotten married to a man, had had two children, and then in 1882, he abandoned his family in Belvedere, Illinois, uh, went to the very small town of Wampum, uh, Wisconsin, and began living his life as a man there, and you know, quickly gained a reputation for being a upstanding, hardworking individual. He got married on Christmas Eve, 1882, and then to a woman named Gertrude. And Frank and Gertrude, by all accounts, lived a happy life for several months. And then Frank Du Bois's former husband appears in a month of looking for his um, for his his wife, and then Frank and Gertrude run away, right, to hide from the former husband, but also authorities that were now involved. And the story played out over a number of weeks. They were on the lam for a number of weeks. And uh, the whole time, the local press is covering the story, the national press is covering the story. And um, at one point in, in the local coverage, this local um, the local paper, the Wampum Times, I believe it was called, actually reproduces an article, a sexological article. And it was actually a case from um, a few years before um, that was the first time a sexolo- an American publication used the term lesbian. Within, um, within a matter of months, that article is now reproduced in the Wampum Times. And it's reproduced not as a source of authority, right? It's reproduced as one possible explanation. And ultimately the paper like doesn't put, put much water in that explanation. It moves on to interview people that knew the couple and um, those voices, the local voices, local authorities were given much more authority um, to determine the narrative and determine the, the framing of this story. Um, and so that's what I saw over and over and over again in my research is that in rural communities, uh, in making sense of stories of trans men, they would look inward, right? Look to others in the community, look at people that knew the individual, knew the trans man, and um, rather than 
you know, looking up what sexologists said about <laughs> proper gender and sexuality, they were more interested in like the really practical questions of, okay, how is this person living as a man? Were they a, a positive contributing member of society? And if they were, then questions of, of, of propriety sort of fall by the wayside. Um, and so I think another, another part of your question was about community. Mm -hmm. And so one thing I find that's sort of remarkable in my research is that, um, uh, the trans men that I find, it doesn't seem like they were always in search of a community of other gender transgressive individuals. The people that I write about are individuals who um, more often than not uh, wanted to um, live life as uh, a normative man, um, for better or worse. We could, we could critique the politics of homonormativity, and that's a, that's a different conversation. Um, uh, but they um, more often than not lived as, as normative men within their communities. And, and so... Um, that's a very different history than um, that has dominated queer history to this point. Um, you know, the first, you know, say 20 years of queer history has been focused on community formation, particularly within urban spaces. Uh, and I think that scholarship is wonderful and very, very valuable. Um, but I think that it also um, suggests to us that queer people only live like in close proximity to one another. Um, when I have in my research, there's lots of examples of trans men who maybe were the only trans men, men in their, in their community. Um, and so I think that presents interesting questions about the methods of which we might approach different aspects of the LGBTQ community in trying to recover their stories. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's you were the way you present this, these stories of the individuals that are living in the rural communities, they're they're having influence too, right? They're being able to shape their community and their contributions within the community, but they're able to do it. And I, you refer to this as the value of whiteness and citizenship mm -hmm. that's being pushed at the turn of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Um, and so at the turn of the century, there's a lot of stuff going on globally, nationally. Um, how did the power of whiteness influence the production of newspaper articles and the influence of and vice versa yeah. um, with what you're discussing? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, <coughs> excuse me. So absolutely. I do, um, um, interrogate whiteness in my in my book and that's another one of the things that I see as a contribution a small contribution of my work is that you know the vast majority of the stories I was able to find were of white trans men and and so I didn't want to present that like unproblematically um, because certainly there were trans people of color in, in this period absolutely um, but it is important to note that newspaper articles or newspapers around the country did not give them the same attention that they gave to white folks. And also um, the stories that I write about are more often than not of trans men who were able to be seen by their communities as acceptable men, even after folks in the community were aware of their anatomy. And in many ways, that acceptability is a privilege of whiteness. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that the majority of the folks that I talk about in my book are white, because I argue that their whiteness facilitated their ability to be seen as acceptable members of their community. Um, with one of the privileges of whiteness is the privilege of 
the presumption of innocence. And so when these trans men, when their anatomy was revealed, the, the community was willing to sort of hear them out uh, in many cases. And, and if they were able to prove like, okay, yes, I'm, I'm a valuable member of this community. I've, I've been employed. I support my wife, et cetera. Then their gender transgression was allowed to be seen as, as relatively benign. And that mm-hmm. same, that same presumption of innocence just simply is not extended to people of color. And so I really, I thought it was important for me to talk about that and acknowledge the power of whiteness in my work. Um, because, you know, the, for a very long time, scholarship in, in queer history um, focused on um, the histories of, of white, white queer people um, without necessarily interrogating the, the ways in which their race, right, their whiteness shaped their experiences. And so, um, and so that's one of the things I wanted to talk about in my book. And, and, and in some ways, like it's a, um, it's, it can be an uncomfortable conversation to have, right? Because um, when we're talking about the history of queer people, we're talking about a population that has been historically marginalized, right? Um, and so, and yet, I think it's important to acknowledge that the experiences of queer people um, is shaped by race. Uh, yes. And there's there's sensitivity to that, as you mentioned, that um, LGBT communities have been marginalized within society, within in the histories of it, bring to light a, a consciousness of, mm-hmm. of what's going on. Um, but you also do an excellent job of complicating and putting the value of how whiteness was valued at the turn of the century, but also showing that at the global scale, whiteness was always in tandem, was always of what's going on within the global discussions, especially with the fight for U.S. empire. Um, and you also have the waves of migration, women's rights movements, industrialization. And they're shaping, all this is shaping how Americans are understanding their lived experience, how they're standing themselves and everyone around them. And you you bring up the story of Jack Beam. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, Jack, or that was known as Jack Garland, was a Mexican, yeah. uh, was a person of Mexican descent, but denied that, or didn't not maybe didn't deny it, but in the newspapers, mm-hmm. there that the person's ethnicity never came to light. His he never mm-hmm. spoke about who he was, his if he was Spanish descent or Latino descent. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? What does that mean within these global changing forces in the nation? Like how mm-hmm. how how is that possible that that yeah. that that would be ethnicity and race was able to be submerged to some level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the story of Jack Garland was actually one of the first stories that I encountered in my research. And it's one of the stories that, you know, was just deeply fascinating me. And that's, you know, one of the, you asked me earlier about the origins of the project in many ways, this book originated with my fascination with Jack Garland. So Jack Garland was an individual who, was born in in California. Their father was a was was Mexican American. He had you know fought against the Americans, the Mexican American War. He um, lived or worked as a Mexican consulate in San Francisco. And his mother, Jack Garland's mother, was a the daughter of a Louisiana congressman, white Anglo um, congressman in Louisiana, and so. Jack Garland was assigned female at birth and then throughout his life assumed different gender identities for a minute in the 1890s. uh, He lived in Stockton, California um, and dressed as a man, but claimed a female identity. Um, And then in 1898 stows away on, on a, on a ship and um, travels to um, Manila to be part of the um, the war um, against the against the Philippines. And when he comes back, and like it's really unclear what he does when he's in the Philippines. Um, some reports say that he was a nurse. Some say that he was an interpreter, like speaking Spanish, uh, to interpreting Spanish to English. Um, some reports say that he was actually like fighting um, in the in the conflict, 
And then when he comes back, it's then that he assumes the name Jack Garland. And he, upon his return, gets this amazing tattoo um, that was an American flag, the name Jack on top, and then two crossed guns, and then numbers below the guns that um, I believe reference the um, the regiment or the group that he was uh, with when he was in, in the Philippines. And... And then lived the rest of his life in in San Francisco. Died in in 1936, and it's his life is so fascinating. Part of how um, when he came back from the Philippines, that's when he fully assumes a male identity, and he takes the name Jack Garland, which Garland had been his mother's maiden name. But in that choice, he renders invisible his 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 ethnicity in a way, right? He's um, in a sort of perhaps might have been passing as, as a white man, um, and because he's no longer using his father's last name, and um, and so in my book, I talk about that and I think about that a great deal and thinking about why would it be that he would do that, um, that he would want to assume, assume this identity. And so I have a chapter in the book that thinks about the, the ways in which trans men of color had to navigate expectations about masculinity, um, that are based in, in white norms. And so, um, that's part of how I interpreted Garland's actions and his choice of like, why would it be that he would get a tattoo with an American flag on it? Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, uh, I talk about um, in that same chapter, I talk about the story of, of Ralph Carwinio, who was an individual whose um, father, uh, who was of uh, was mixed race. He, um, his father was African-American. His mother might've been indigenous, um, the Potawatomi or Cherokee. He would claim various different, different identities. Um, and in, um, 18, not 19, 1908, he's living in, um, Chicago meets a woman. They decide to, to live as, to live as man and wife. They move from Chicago to Milwaukee, um, and again, like thinking about geographies, like, um, they, so his wife was also, um, a woman of color and, um, she was African-American and, you know, Chicago had a large African-American community, a large queer community at the turn of the 20th century. And yet this couple, when they decide that they're going to live as man and wife, they decide not to remain in Chicago but to move to Milwaukee, which might not seem like um, as open as a space, but they were able to live there for a number of years um, as, as man and wife. And in 1910, that's the first year that Ralph Carinio appears on the U S census as male. And the census taker marked him as male and then actually marks him as white and says that he is Spanish because he claimed that he was a spit that he was um, Bolivian, but of Spanish descent. So he's able to sort of um, create this identity for himself that um, allowed him to blend into the immigrant communities that were um, in Milwaukee at the time, immigrants and children of immigrants were the majority um, of the population of Milwaukee. And he's able to sort of blend into that milieu. Um, And again, like, the um, perhaps passing as white or passing as Spanish helped to facilitate his, um, his transition to into masculinity um, as well. So um, in, in telling the stories uh, of the few trans people of color that I have in, in my book, I try to try to understand their choices and their lives, not just in relation to like the um, local conditions, but I also try to place it in conversation with the the ways in which race and gender were being understood on a national level 
And at the turn of the 20th century, you're absolutely right. Um, thinking about American identity, like you really can't think about that without thinking about the way the U.S. was positioning itself to the rest of the world, right, as an increasingly imperial imperial power. Um, we're absolutely defining ourselves against, you know, what we're seeing as the others. And that had big impacts on how we were thinking about and talking about gender and sexuality, right? And so increasingly, um, gender and sexual deviance in the early 20th century was often pathologized through the lens of foreignness. Um, and so, the, um, for example, the story of Ralph Carino, when his anatomy is revealed, he's, he's arrested and the national press sort of goes crazy and they talk about Ralph Carino as a foreigner and as a pathological deviant in part because he was categorized as, as, as an other, as an outsider, as foreign. Um, and so part of what I do in the book is sort of interrogate notions of foreignness and how that impacts um, domestic understandings of gender and sexuality and how trans men of color had to sort of navigate that um, in um, the best they could. Yeah. And Carino, he was facing um, the Mexican Revolution, the yeah. midst of it, right? Yeah, and, yeah exactly. exactly. And newspapers are go, going haywire about yeah. discussing his, his arrest yeah. and how his identity shaping this these discussions nationally and locally. But there's also another dynamic, another another dynamic, another influence, right, that you discussed that trans trans men are not living singular lives. In that mm-hmm. what I mean is that they're they're having they're getting married. Mm-hmm. And so how does their identity shape their within marriage? I mean, what are the what how are the newspapers discussing marriage and what are the women saying? Because they're in particular, what Ralph's case is that he was married and then he married someone else. Mm-hmm. Yes, and the woman retaliated. Mm-hmm. Mammy White retaliated, which is which was his wife. She retaliated, and she was the one that told the Milwaukee police about his "quote unquote" true sex. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, how is marriage influencing or changing their lived experiences? Is that add another um, dynamic of? of having to fit into a certain mold within these rural landscapes. Yeah. 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 So um, I, one of the things that I noticed when I was doing my research and compiling all the stories that I found, I found about 65 cases um, of trans men reported in papers from the 1870s, to the 1930s. And I had like, you know, created for myself a big Excel spreadsheet and with some like, little notes on each case. And one of the things that I noticed that was um, a a commonality among most of the cases is that most of these men were either married to women or were engaged to be married to women. And at first that struck me as strange because, um, because their lives were very carefully constructed, right? So this is a time before people had access to transition medically. And so they had to be very careful and very deliberate about how they presented themselves. And they were aware that at any time their, their identity, their anatomy could be revealed and that the life that they had built themselves built for themselves could be taken away. And so the act of marriage I thought then was sort of puzzling because the act of marriage, right? When you get married, you present yourself to the state and you have to prove your identity or provide documentation of your identity to the state. And so in that sense, the act of getting married was an act of making yourself vulnerable to discovery. And so I began to think of what, if the act of getting married is you're, you're presenting yourself to the state um, you're committing a crime, right? You're you're claiming a, a false name. Um, so, given that these trans men absolutely understood that they were there was some risk involved, what would what's the benefit? Like, why why put yourself to this risk um, when in you know much the other evidence I have is that these lives were very carefully constructed. And my theory, my argument is that. Um, in a time before um, medical transitions were possible, 
um, and legal transitions were possible that the act of getting married, a marriage certificate that you know says that you are a husband, was one of the only legal documents that trans men had access to that would legally proclaim their masculinity. And for many of them, I think that that sort of legal validation and the legal category of, of husband was a way of, ex- of, of claiming acceptability, claiming, um, you know, the, the category of, of husband um, is one that is, has um, great social value to it. And so in the act and the acts that I see in the book over and over again of these men trying to claim acceptability, prove that they were, you know, living as quote unquote normal men, um, the act of getting married then is a very important act, right? In, in claiming acceptability and claiming um, like normativity in a way. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, the, the last chapter of, of the book is all about these stories of, of, of trans men um, getting married and one of the things that's remarkable about the press coverage of these cases is that by the time we get to the 1920s, there's a number of states that are passing laws um, to regulate marriage, right? So we have eugenic laws being passed um, that require, say, blood tests before marriage. We have um, in Oregon, the passage of something that was referred to colloquially as the lazy husband law, which um, if, a, if a husband abandoned their family, the wife could sue the husband for like lack of support. And then if they were found guilty, the husbands could be sentenced to um, work at a farm for a certain number of weeks. And then they had to like, and, and then their wages would be like sent to the family. Um and so there's these laws being passed throughout throughout the United States, um, and so marriage is seen to be as something that like is is fragile needs protection from the state. And then we have these stories of trans men being published, and marriage is often a part of the story. Um, but interestingly, um, there's not a great deal of anxiety about trans men as husbands, even into the even into the twenties. They didn't. They don't. Um, there's not a lot of anxiety yet. Um, which I think, which I think is interesting. Another part of your question um, relates to the women that were involved in, in these marriages. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever I talk about my research and whenever I talk about these stories, someone always asks about the wives. <laughs> like, what did the wives say? Um, because often uh, uh, many of the people I talk about um, lived, their lives as, lived their lives as men for decades. And it was only when they died that their community realizes that they were um, anatomic didn't have the anatomy conventionally associated with masculinity and so in those cases the wives are interviewed and like 97 percent of the time the wives say oh i had no idea they weren't a man <laughs> like i had no idea um I'm- that was a question mark for me when i was <laughs> reading it yeah um and and so, and that's a, and that, that response is very uniform. Like it happens over and over and over again. That response is always, I don't know. Or sometimes they provide a story about like how they didn't know before they get their wedding night. And then upon their wedding night, they, um, the, this was revealed, but then they lived together as, as brother and sister, something like that. Yes. Um, <laughs> which, I mean, maybe that's true. Like maybe that's true in some cases, but probably not true in all the cases. And, um, but what I'm into, what part of what I, I analyze in the book is why is there um, the desire of the, on the behalf of the wives to deny knowledge. And um, I interpret that as a way for the wives to, um, continue living in, in the communities as respectable members of, of the community um, and feigning ignorance was a way of um, presenting themselves as innocent, right? So any suggestion that they were sexually depraved could be sort of squashed by this line of, I had no idea, or yes, I knew, but we lived as brother and sister and it was fine. Um, and that sort of allowed newspapers to sidestep the, the, the conversation about sexuality. Absolutely. And I, 
I agree. And the stories of the women themselves, I think it also elaborates and shows of the precarious position that they were put in um, because the system of marriage is such a powerful tool to regulate people in America Mm -hmm. um, that I think that if they were, I mean, this is just my belief that if they were to, you know, come out and be like, yeah, I knew their precarious position as women um, and the respectability would be toppled upon who their, their, um, their image, right. Mm -hmm. Their image in society valued highly, Mm -hmm. especially if their partner had, had ceased. Mm -hmm. Um, and they, what would they have to do next? Mm -hmm. How would they live? Exactly. Exactly. So I totally, I totally, I can see that. Um, so I have one last question now that our conversation's nearing towards an end. Um, this has been such a great, great (laughs) conversation. Um, what projects are you now working on? Yeah, well, great. I just, uh, well, first, I just want to say I've also very much enjoyed our conversation. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Um, and thanks for the opportunity to, to share my work. Um, so my next project I'm working on, um, it might sound at first like it's a completely a complete divergence from my earlier work, but um, I'll circle back to how it's related in a minute. But my next project is um, looking at the history of breastfeeding or chest feeding um, and not necessarily like the history of breastfeeding itself, but rather the history of the discourses around breastfeeding, like how is breastfeeding talked about in American culture? Um, I'm interested in thinking about discourses around breastfeeding as a barometer for measuring proper parenthood, specifically proper motherhood. Um, because, and part of this is based in my own experience as someone that has given birth and breastfed to, to children um, that in contemporary America, if you, particularly if you're a white and middle class, you, there's all these expectations around breastfeeding that are placed on you. Um, things like, um, that you must breastfeed, but you shouldn't breastfeed for too long. Like if breastfeeding toddler, that's weird. Uh, don't breastfeed, like, yes, absolutely breastfeed, but don't breastfeed after you've been drinking or don't breastfeed in public, right? There's a, this seemingly like very narrow course of what's acceptable, um, and so I'm coming at this project with the assumption that discourses around breastfeeding are not neutral, right? They're not only designed to provide information to parents about how to keep their babies alive, but it's fundamentally about like policing women's mm-hmm. bodies, policing the definitions of proper motherhood, um, et cetera. And so I, um, that's sort of where I'm coming from. I'm working right now on what will probably be the last chapter of the book. And it's about um, the experiences of queer and gender nonconforming and trans folks who um, have given birth and are, tr- and are trying to navigate the discourse around breastfeeding or chest feeding, which some people call it. Um, because the advice lit about breastfeeding is so hyper feminine. <laughs> the, uh, one of the canonical books on breastfeeding is literally called The Womanly Art of Breastfeeding. <laughs> and so if you don't identify as, as femme, then this literature can be um, alienating. And so I'm interested in, in thinking about the experience, particularly of gender nonconforming and trans folks. Um, who, you know, are um, the discourse around motherhood is just is so gendered um, and trying to recover experiences of people that are, don't identify um, a, a, as a woman and yet um, um, have given birth and are, you know, seeking to, um, to feed their children through, through chest feeding or lactation. So that's yes, what I'm going to that's excellent. I I mean, I haven't given birth yet. Um, I don't know that experience. Um, but I do know I do follow the conversations about that. And it's very I mean, it goes back to the question to the conversation we had a whiteness, all the articles that I read, right? It's centered around whiteness and motherhood and acceptability. Mm-hmm. And this mm-hmm. how 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 merging to the conversation to how uh, women of color, people of color use space for motherhood and chest feeding. And mm-hmm. it's there's so many different dynamics that go into that. It's a racialization process of it, except it goes back to acceptability. Mm-hmm. Who's accepted to be able to 
um, feed their babies in public, mm-hmm. exactly. right? Exactly. And so, and it, and it complicates even more with the, the LGBT mm-hmm. community because they are part of this conversation. They are mm-hmm. affected about what's what's acceptable and what's not. And so, mm-hmm. I think this it's an exciting project, and I look forward to hearing more about it as time continues. Oh, well, um, Emily. Oh, well, thank you. I want to thank you for. Sh- you're quite welcome. I want to thank you again for sharing your time with us, for every with everyone listening, and for being on the show today. Um, yeah. Thank you so, much. so for those listening, oh, absolutely. <laughs> for those listening to this episode, which we featured Dr. Skidmore's work, True Sex, The Lives of Trans Men at the Turn of the 20th Century, published with New York University Press in 2017. I highly encourage you all to go buy her book <laughs> and keep an eye out for more of her work to come. And remember, her book came out in paperback. So go get it. I encourage you. And if you want to send me a message, you can find me on Twitter at T underscore J underscore G-O-N-Z-A-L-E-Z. I encourage you to share this episode with fellow podcast listeners. Hasta la próxima.